0: Shabbat shalom everyone, you may be seated. Rabbi Hillel gets a lot of attention for what he did in summing up the Torah. For those who don't know, there is a famous story where someone who wanted to convert to Judaism came to Rabbi Shammai and said, teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And Shammai took a stick and pushed him away and said, get out of here. As if to say, you can't teach the entire Torah standing on one foot. You can't boil it down. It doesn't work that way. So the same person went up to Hillel. And he says, Hillel, teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And Hillel says, do unto others as you want done unto yourself, which comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. Ahavta Larecha <laughs> Kamocha. And then Hillel says, Zilug Mor, now go out and start learning, and pushes him away. In essence, what Hillel did was he gave the first tweet, because the sentence he gave was less than 140 characters, and it summed up everything that was the feeling. And we always come back to Hillel. We always come back to this teaching that we can sum up the whole Torah in just one simple sentence. And today, in a world where everyone has Twitter, not just Hello, or Facebook, or we get news flashes on our telephones or on the lines, we really have become a people that have lost our sense of nuance. We just look for the staccato, one-line answers. Let me give you a few examples. I went out to eat with someone a few weeks ago who was from an orthodox synagogue and he says to me, in innocence and in naivete, but the naivete of innocence, not of obnoxiousness. He says, do you keep kosher? I said, of course I keep kosher. He says, do you keep kosher out of your house? I said, yes, I keep kosher out of my house. He says, well, do you eat out at non-kosher restaurants? I said, yes. I'll eat pasta and I'll eat fish and I'll eat salad. He says, well, then you really don't keep kosher. I said, well, actually, I think I do. He says, either you do keep kosher or you don't keep kosher. It works like that. That was the beginning, the middle, and the end of the conversation. Right. As if to say, there is no other layer of which to discuss. Because I spent a lot of time studying the laws of kosher. A lot. More than everyone else probably in this room. And there are details and nuance and differences between that which is of and that which is a fruit or that which is a vegetable and that which is a fish. And some people choose to keep it the way I do, and some people choose to keep it more stringently, and some people choose to keep it a little bit less stringently, and that's their prerogative. But for others, they just saw it in a very simple, staccato, black or white answer, yes or no. And there are more and more who are looking for that. I'll give you another example that happened in the last 10 days most people know. I was at APAC. We brought close to 70 people from our congregation to APAC. And the number one question I got from friends, from family, from colleagues and members of this congregation was, was, wasn't even a question, it was just a word. Trump? (laughs) Yes? Is there a question? Is there? Well? Well, what? What'd you think? Well, they really weren't asking what I think. I said, well, what do you mean, what did I think? The first question they asked was, did you stay in the room for his speech? Because there was a whole group of rabbis that decided to leave for his speech. And then, once I told them I did stay in the room for the speech, they said, did you applaud? There was no sense of, can we talk for a few minutes over what your views are and how you feel? And when I told people that I applauded, they looked at me as if to put me in one particular category. How could you have applauded for Donald Trump, especially you, Rabbi, who speaks out about some of the things he has said and done, how could you have applauded? Well, let me tell you when I applauded. I applauded when he said that he believes Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people and Jerusalem should be its everlasting capital. I believe that. I applauded for that. He had one really brilliant line, and I give him a lot of credit for this line. He said, in a world where we make firefighters our heroes, young boys and girls will dream of being firefighters when they grow up. And in a world where we make athletes our heroes, young boys and girls will dream of being athletes when they grow up. And in a world where we take suicide bombers and make them our heroes, young boys and girls will dream of being suicide bombers. So we must stop making these people martyrs and heroes, and we must condemn these acts of violence. Is there anyone here who disagrees with that statement? I'm curious. I don't disagree with that statement. I thought he brilliantly articulated a real problem of how it is that we are glorifying terror, especially in the Mideast. And I applauded for that line. Why? Because I agreed with every single syllable of what he said. Now, there are other things he said I didn't agree with. There are other things he has said at other times that find me um, getting my temper up. But on that line, I really agreed with it. And I applauded for it. But almost every single person who asked me, Trump, did you stay in the room? Did you applaud? Never bothered to ask or to wait or to listen to any sense of the layering of an answer. They just wanted the simple yes or no. He was one of the rabbis that left. He was one of the rabbis that stayed. He was one of the people that applauded. He was one that didn't applaud. As if to make two camps that one is in or one is out that's a problem. This has come to light this week in particular over a most terrifying and horrible situation in Hebron. For those of you who haven't been to Hebron, there are thousands upon thousands and thousands of Palestinians that live there, Muslim Palestinians, not Israeli citizens, and there are about 500 Jews that live in Hebron. It's absolutely disproportionate in the amount of people who live there, and because of the 500 Jews, there are probably about 1,500 soldiers there on some regular basis to ensure safety for both the sacred sites of the Tomb of Machpelah, the grave marker for Abraham and Sarah and uh, Rebecca and uh, Isaac and Esau, all these people who are buried there, they maintain a sense of a decorum there because it's a sacred place both to the Muslims and to the Jews and to the 500 that are there, there are all these soldiers that are there. Well, there was a young man, a boy who took a knife and tried to stab an Israeli soldier and the attack was thwarted to the point where they knocked the boy down on the ground. He had his arms spread out in a moment of surrender. His knife was a good 10, 15 feet away from him and in some act of upset, I don't know the details yet, it's still alleged, it was caught on video, but uh, I'm not here to make a claim one way or the other. The soldier shot the man point blank, the Palestinian man point blank range in the head and killed him, summarily. Now, there are two groups in Israel today. And if you don't believe me, just tune into social media and you will see the chasm that is living in the Jewish world. One group says, We cannot try this soldier. We cannot find him guilty. They tried to kill him. He should be exonerated. How dare we ever do this to an Israeli soldier defending our homeland? There's another group that says he's a murderer. He was unarmed. This is not how we take the law into our own hands. How dare we? And these two groups are fighting at each other at a lot more than just this particular case. They are fighting over the heart and soul of what they believe is the future of the Jewish people and those who defend it. And they have categorized them into two camps. One is he must be tried and go to jail and then we have to pull out of Hebron. And the other camp is there's nothing that can happen to this person. He is Teflon. We will put a force field around him because they can do no wrong as soldiers in such an environment. Now, I don't know every single detail of this case. I've read a lot about it but I've read it through the media. I don't know the inside scoop. But from what I've read, this is what I would tell you. I would tell you that you'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of people who love Israel and love the Israeli soldiers and support them unconditionally as much as I do in the kind of ethic that we've tried to share here at the temple. I don't think you can know me for more than 10 minutes and think I don't have a love for Israel and I don't have a love for our soldiers. It'd be hard to do that. But from what I've learned, this soldier acted wrongly. And what I believe is that soldiers should be looked after and they're protecting our land, but they also have to be reminded of the rules in which they have to keep. And if indeed this soldier did commit this crime, then he should be tried for this crime because it's wrong. But in trying him for this crime, in no way does that hold me to a a particular view on how I feel about Hebron and what we should do in Hebron or how I feel about Israel or how I feel about soldiers. But sadly, If I were to speak out about this in many environments, I would just be painted in one particular brush and that's where I'd be seen. And why? Because we've lost our sense of nuance. We've lost our sense of unpeeling the onion. We have been married to an idea of Twitter for generations, not just in the 10 years it's been out. We have been married to the idea of the staccato quick answer to categorize us in the house of Hillel or the house of Shammai. But sometimes we can live in two homes at once. And sometimes we are required, not just encouraged, but required to really unpeel the onion. This week I had something that, uh, that got under my skin in a very significant way in the same vein. I spent my, um, my Tuesday morning going to the Belgian consulate on behalf of the New York Board of Rabbis where we had a small prayer vigil with other members of the faith community and stood with the consulate and the ambassador of Belgium to proclaim our alliance, allegiance, love, condolences to the people of Belgium for the terrible attack that they suffered on their soil. It was welcomed in a very appreciative way. And on Thursday, we headed to the Pakistani consulate for the same thing. And because I utilize social media often, I put on Tuesday our picture with the Belgian leadership that we had just done this, and that on Thursday we were going to the Pakistani consulate to offer them consolation on the 70 plus people who were murdered on Easter Sunday, predominantly women and children and predominantly Christian, done in an act of terror, focused specifically on these people. And one person in particular, someone who I happen to know, drew great ire at the notion that the New York Board of Rabbis and David Seth Kirshner, the rabbi of this temple, would dare go to the Pakistani consulate. Because after all, the Pakistani people don't recognize the state of Israel and have consistently voted against them in the United Nations. The Pakistani people were known as a leadership and a government to have harbored Osama bin Laden, this person said. And we know that they have nuclear weapons. So for those reasons and nothing more needed, how dare we go and offer them consolation? Now, let's be quite honest. I have a major problem with the Pakistani government not recognizing the state of Israel. And I have a major problem with their consistent votes against Israel and the United Nations for years and years and years. And yes, I have a major problem with the terror that's being bred in Pakistan. Not only Osama bin Laden, but Daniel Pearl was killed in Pakistan. And why was he killed? For being a Jew. Those were his last words. So yes that bothers my soul significantly. But you know what else bothers my soul? Christian women and children playing on a playground who get killed just for being Easter and being Christian. That bothers my soul. And if I lose the ability to offer consolation, if I lose the ability to offer tears and a heart and an outstretched arm, then I lose my ability to be nuanced. Because going there and offering that consolation doesn't mean I celebrate everything they stand for. It doesn't believe I stand with them shoulder to shoulder. It means that their pain can be my pain too. But we still have what to disagree on and to fight over. But we still have that that we can share. And that's bigger than Twitter. You need more than 140 characters to explain that. And we need to break out of this mold of everything being so linear and staccato and short. And furthermore, if we make that our criteria for who we visit, then what's to stop others from doing the same for us? Aren't we supposed to be a light unto other nations? Shouldn't we act differently? Shouldn't we behave the way we want to be treated? If there are people in the world who are upset for with Israel because they believe that Israel is occupying the West Bank? Because that's their belief? Should that be their only criteria so that when we suffer a loss they can't offer us condolences or consolation? I sure would hope not. We wouldn't like that very much at all. So we have to be above that and bigger than that in every way. The world has lost its sense of nuance and the Jewish people are losing its sense of nuance and it's becoming more and more dangerous to us as a nation state, and as a religion, and as a tribe. I'm gonna give you an example of how this works, but I'm gonna do it through a metaphor. It's a real metaphor, and it's really proven, and I want you all to to focus on this one so you can understand its application. Somewhere in Mississippi lives a man who works on a farm as a fourth generation farmer. He has a pickup truck, he has a few shotguns, he has a couple of dogs, and he has about six teeth. And he is passionately opposed to the notion of Ebonics. Do you all remember Ebonics? This was a particular language that was uh, used in the African-American community that had a sense of slang incorporated in it, where the African-American community wanted to use their language, the way in which they spoke, as an official form of parlance, one to the next. And this southern person down there, who probably had deep-rooted connections to the Ku Klux Klan and was bigoted and racist, didn't want Ebonics in his school systems and didn't want it in his life. He didn't want it in his country. And he said with his southern twang, we don't let people talk like that, even though God knows we could laugh at the way in which he spoke, too. But then, take that man and put him in whatever category you want to hold him in for a minute and compare him and contrast him to Jesse Jackson for a minute or, forgetting what's going on with him right now, Bill Cosby, who both of those African American leaders were passionately opposed to the notion of Ebonics. They were opposed to it being taught in school and the reason they were opposed to it is because they believed that teaching Ebonics was going to make it harder for young African American men and women to find their place in a predominantly white world in a predominantly world that speaks in a way that Ebonics isn't appreciated or spoken in. Now, if you put Bill Cosby and Jesse Jackson in this other camp, and you put this man from Mississippi in this camp, from 30,000 feet and from 5,000 feet, they are the same. They both want the same thing. But they want it for very different reasons. And the problem is when we work in that Twitter unnuanced world that we end up categorizing the man from the Ku Klux Klan and Jesse Jackson and Bill Cosby in the same place. And that's that's crazy. That's silly. And why do we do that? Because we're lacking our ability to unpack and to unpeel and to fully appreciate. So, Let's take that metaphor for a minute. You got people who are put into camps, which aren't even fair camps to put them in, APAC or J Street. And those who are vehemently mad at J Street, I won't talk about them, I won't see them, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Trust me, I got plenty of issues with J Street, don't get me wrong. But there are people who support J Street who are Jewish, who proudly love the state of Israel and believe it's in their Jewish interests for Israelis to withdraw from the West Bank and to give the Palestinians autonomy, a military, and for them to live their life. They don't do it. They don't believe that because they hate Israel. They believe it because they love Israel. Now, I know some of the people like this. Letty cotton Pagrebin has been very outspoken on this front. And she's a passionate Zionist. But this is how she believes. But if you put her in a room with someone who's an anti-Zionist, their views are similar and you will categorize someone like Leti Cottenpogrebin as an anti-Zionist, which is outrageous. It is just outrageous. And why? Because all of us think it's very simple to just put people in a camp of their APEC, their J Street. And if they're in that camp, then it doesn't need any further delineation. And that is criminal. Did you know that when it came to voting on sanctions for Iran, when they were enriching nuclear potential and uranium, that Tom Cotton, a Republican senator, and Rand Paul, an independent libertarian senator, and his father, Ron Paul, voted the same way. They voted against putting sanctions in place. Now, you might say to yourself, Tom Cotton? Really? What's that about? Well, Tom Cotton thought the sanctions were too light. And he was passionate that the sanctions needed to be ratcheted up even stronger with more muscle and more twist and more oomph that we shouldn't let Iran get away with one inch of what's happening. But the Paul family, they didn't feel that way. They felt that this was an issue that America did not have to be involved in. But if you look at the ledger, they voted the same. They voted the same. And if we take the time just to look on voting records, they come out at the exact same time place, but they come at it from totally different places. And that would be a crime. I would argue that the Paul family and Tom Cotton would be very upset to be lumped together on many issues, including this one on Iran. And what's this all about? It's all about this notion that we can't unpack. We focus on Hillel because Hillel tells us, do unto others as we want done unto ourselves. And we last, those last two words of what he says, we all forget about. I bet you most of the people in this room don't even know those last two words. He says, more, which means go out and learn. If I want to boil it all down for you, great, I can boil it down into a sentence. But now you have to go and learn. And we are a people who have boiled it down, and we have forgotten the second part, which is go and learn. Which in our instance means go and unpack. Go and start to unlayer this onion and unpeel it in a way that we can start to appreciate nuance and complicated components and thoughtful ideas and another perspective. None of us, I wouldn't argue for one person here to ever lose their passion. But I do think it's healthy for us to start to jettison some of our dogma because it's that dogma that puts us in those very, very refined categories and doesn't allow us to zigzag or to reach into other camps. And that becomes dangerous. We need to be that way when we're talking about Kashrut. We need to be that way when we're talking about Israel. We need to be that way when we're talking about our religion, our tradition, our history, our views on politics. We have to be that way. Because I can be opposed to the candidacy of Donald Trump and still applaud a view, he says, that I think resonates with me as a Jew and as someone who believes in those values. And you should be able to do that too. Even the Sanhedrin of old. The Sanhedrin of old said that when everyone was unanimous, the case was always dismissed. There always has to be another view, another opinion, some dissension, so that there could be something to unpack. And if we don't unpack it, then we're losing our ability to be Jewish. Did you know that per capita, Israel has more coffee houses per capita than any other country in the world? Now this is the country that invented so much technology that we all use every day, including SMS and the cell phone and all these other things that have distanced the whole world, but in Israel, even with all of those advances, people sit in the coffee house and catch up more than any other country per capita. Why? I would argue because fundamentally, at our core, we have to be a people that unpacks, that uses the semicolon, that explains in a little bit more detail. And you do that not on Twitter, but face to face at the coffee house with a little bit more time and a little bit more curiosity and a little bit more interest. And that allows us to see. The different layers of what we're all made of. I close with this prayer, a prayer that reminds us of who we are as a people. We have always said that we are two Jews with three opinions. Let us be two Jews with four opinions, but one heart. Let us have a shared heart, but let us appreciate those opinions. Because if it isn't for those opinions, we have no commentary on the Torah, and it's meaningless to its application to our lives. It's the commentary that brings it to life. Make space for your commentary and for the commentary of your neighbor. And let us realize that Twitter is good for some news, but a real essay once in a while allows us to unpack our innermost feelings and appreciations and understanding. Because a world without nuance is not a Jewish world. And we can't afford to live in a world without those layers. Shabbat shalom, everyone.